Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Does human life have any meaning? Does the question even make sense today? For centuries, the question of the meaning or purpose of human life was assumed by scholars and theologians to have an answer in religion. Life has meaning because humans were made in the image of a good God. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution changed everything, however, and the human organism was seen to be more of a machine than spirit. Ever since, with the rise of science and the decline of religious belief, there's been a growing interest and growing doubt about whether human life really does have meaning. If it does, where might we find it? Historian and philosopher of science Michael Roos investigates this question in his new book, A Meaning to Life, asking whether we can find a new meaning to life within Darwinian views of human nature. Rather than promoting a bleak nihilism, many Darwinians think we can convert Darwin into a form of secular humanism. Roos explains, in a tradition going back to the time of Darwin himself, positive meaning is found in continuing and supporting the upwards path of life provided by the process of evolution itself. However, this is a false turn, he argues, because there is no real progress in the evolutionary process. Rather, meaning in the Darwinian age can be found if we turn to a kind of Darwinian existentialism, he says, seeing our evolved human nature as the source of all meaning both in the intellectual and social worlds. Roos argues that it is only by accepting our true nature, evolved over millennia, that humankind can truly find what is meaningful. Michael Roos is the Lucille T. Workmeister Professor of Philosophy and Director of the History and Philosophy of Science program at Florida State University. He's written or edited more than 50 books, including Darwinism as Religion, The Philosophy of Human Evolution, the Darwinian Revolution, and On Purpose, which he spoke with us about previously, actually, on this very program. He's a very fun interview, and so I'm happy to say he's here with me again today to discuss his latest book, A Meaning to Life. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Professor Michael Roos. Well, hello. I mean, <laughs> hi. Hi. Uh, hello to you, too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. So just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field? Okay. Well, I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, obviously, if you can hear my accent, uh, I'm an Englishman. I arrived in pouring rain in Quebec City on September the 17th, 1962, in order to go and do graduate work at McMaster University. And in those days, it was easier to emigrate than get a student visa. And so I not only emigrated, but I ended up staying in Canada and teaching at the University of Guelph for 35 years. Uh, when I turned 60 back in 2000, uh, I was facing compulsory retirement, and I got a young wife, and I was going to have three teenagers at home when I retired. And if that is the hellish prospect, I don't know what is. Uh, <laughs> and I got a job offer from Florida State down here in Tallahassee, as they say, in this part of the world, it was a slam dunk. And so I've been here ever since. I'm 79 in a couple of weeks' time. 
And I think I've pretty much decided now to go one more year and then retire when I'm 80. So that'll be, a, I think, a pretty good uh, run for my money. Uh, I always like to joke that although I'm a non-believer, I take the parable of the talents very seriously. Uh, when I when I finished, I hope to say to my non-existent God, well, God, you gave me my talents and I think I've used them to the full. How's that sound? That's wonderful. That's right. I'm in Quebec too, so we have that in common. Yes, indeed. I, uh, I just come back from Vancouver, actually. It, uh, I have to say, my wife and I are thinking very seriously if Donald Trump uh, is re-elected next year, I'll be retired then, that we might well move back to Canada. Um, we just feel that strongly about it. Yeah, I don't blame you. And Vancouver is such a beautiful place. And congratulations on your new granddaughter. Well, thank you very much. But you know, it, Terry, since we're talking at this sort of level, I mean, it's also very much bound up with secularism and religion. I mean, for all True. the Americans pretend that they separate church and state, they don't. I mean, look at the anti-abortion stuff that's going on from the South, but right through the whole country now. And uh, Trump has just frozen, uh, you know, what is it, uh, fetal research uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, frankly, it's not a question of being anti-religion. It's just wanting to live in a society where evangelical religion is not thrust down our throats. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, it's pretty ironic that the country upon which uh, you know they based their whole beginning as an experiment in separating church and state, and now they're actually, I believe, the most religious of all the developed uh, countries. It's just appalling. I mean, it's just absolutely frightening in that respect. I mean, the, what goes on. But as I say, what gets to me is the hypocrisy of the whole thing. I mean, you know, at one level, Canada's much more open. I mean, in Ontario, where I lived for 40 years, they have a Catholic school system. So you don't get the pretense of separation in that way. But you do at another level. I mean, I remember when Pierre Trudeau died, and it was revealed that he was a very sincere Roman Catholic. I don't think I was the only one to be absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, we had no idea of the man's religious commitments, nor was it any of our business, because he, he just got on with governing. Whereas, of course, in the States, I mean, the thought that a an atheist might run for any kind of position, better that they be transgender, black, and from Mars. Yeah, it's true. Although I think we, or I say we, I'm American as well. Um, I think there's one or two atheists in a, in a office at somewhere. I think they're probably, the I'm sure that, Oh, one or two. I'm sure that if you search long and hard, I'm sure you would find somebody from Washington State or, or somewhere like California who, yeah. you know, who's a bit dicey on these issues. Yeah, or at least, uh, you know, there may be more than that, but they're not willing to admit because it has become a test for us. Right, right. But, but that actually leads me into my next question, because I wanted to ask you about the circumstances that um, led to you writing this particular book. Well, um well, go ahead. Go ahead. The book, of course, is called A Meaning to Life. And you know, if you'd asked me five years ago whether I was going to write a book like this, I'd have looked at you as though you were queer in the head. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd be more likely to, you know, to write something on uh, uh, colonoscopy for young and old or something of that nature. I mean, really, <laughs> you know, everything you wanted to know about colonoscopies, but were afraid to ask. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, why did I write a book like this? Was it just because I was getting old uh, or what? 
I suppose at one level it is getting old, but it, I think it was more than that. I think it was more a feeling that I got to the point in my life where I had something to say that was important to me, and I hope, if not important to others, at least something that I could share with them. I I, I was born in England, as, as I said, and uh, at the beginning of the war, my father was a conscientious objector, and after the war, he and my mother uh, joined the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. And so I was brought up very intensely in a Christian family, a uh, Protestant, but uh, Quakers, of course, they don't have dogma or that sort of thing. And at about the age of 20, for whatever reason, my faith just faded and went. It wasn't a you know, Saul on the road to Damascus experience in reverse. Suddenly I said, oh, my God, I'm an atheist. God doesn't exist. Uh, it It just sort of... Like the, it just softly and silently vanished away, uh, like the chap who saw the snark. And um, I always thought that at the age of seventy, I, I'd be getting back on side with the big fellow in the sky. You know, you you better co- you know you better cover your options at, at seventy. And the very strange thing I saw, I found that I didn't want to do that. If anything, I felt more secure. Not in my atheism, but certainly in my non-belief. And it's a very real non-belief. It's not a a non-belief which is really covering up for being a Christian, but I don't like to say so, you know, around all my secular friends. And so I found that going into my 70s that uh, I didn't have any belief. But obviously, at another level, all my life as a philosopher, I've been thinking about the big questions, you know, what is the meaning of life, uh, what about morality, all of these sorts of things. And so it was clear that at one level, the Quaker background stayed with me very strongly because the thing about Quakers is they always say, we don't have dogmas, we can give you some guide, we can give you some advice, but ultimately, you have to make these decisions yourself. And so uh, at the one level, I was doing that sort of thing. At the other level, I was, if I say wrestling with meaning, I don't mean in keeping me awake at night, uh, uh, but certainly it was something uh, which really mattered to me. Uh, And um, so there I was uh, uh, doing this, and I I found increasingly that I wanted to write about it. And so this is what I've done in the book. Now, the other thing I should mention is that uh, I've always been – a very big Victorian buff. I don't know quite why. When I grew up as a schoolboy, I loved reading Dickens uh, and those sorts of things. I remember going to London when I was about 19 and standing on Parliament Hill Fields and looking south and seeing St. Pancras Railway Station, that glorious Victorian building, which is now the head, you know, the, the hub for Eurostar. And uh, this was all, you know, so Victoriana was very important to me. And it, it, because I was interested in philosophy, interested in science, this led me very naturally to Darwin, uh, Darwin and science and religion. And so this is what I've worked on all my life. And I suppose one of the things I wanted to say as, as I grow towards the end, no, as, as I matured, was is being a Darwinian, is believing that you're not the creation of a good God on the sixth day in him, his image, but that rather you're one at the end of a tree of life, you're the end process of a long, slow, rather painful uh, evolution of struggle for existence leading for natural selection. Is, is this relevant to the meaning of life? And I, I felt, yeah, it has to be somewhere. It has to matter 
that we are modified monkeys, as Thomas Henry Huxley used to say, rather than modified mud, that it really has to matter somewhere. And so this book that I've just written, the, the, uh, A Meaning to Life, is my rather, shall I say, fumbling attempt uh, to, to say something and put it down on paper. But I wanted to put it down on paper in a way that real people could read it, not just my fellow philosophers. In other words, I wasn't going to say things like, well, take person A and person B and assume that A is bigger than B. What happens then with a probability of C, blah, 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 you know, which by the end of the first paragraph, you're fast asleep. If you're not, except if you're a graduate student, and there you're looking for something you can disagree with and put in your dissertation. But, um, but as I say, I, I, I wanted, so, I really wanted to say something that I could say to others, and it, it, it's been a great help that all through my life I've been a teacher, and particularly an undergraduate teacher. That's where my real satisfaction has always lain. And of course, if you're an undergraduate teacher, keep it simple, stupid. You, there's undergraduates. You just have to keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and so uh, that's always been a big, uh, what should I say, moral or motto for my writing uh, for everybody. That I want people to be able to read what I'm doing and understand why I'm doing it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, dive into the first chapter then. Um, you begin by looking at the history of the decline in the belief in God and the increasing willingness to embrace a nihilistic view of existence. And you actually start with the conditions of life in England around the year 1500. Uh, I guess to compare the um, very present role of religion in people's lives at that time to bring meaning to their short and difficult lives. Um, and then you move on up through to today's views, which have been shaped by the Renaissance, uh, Darwin, scientific discovery. So tell us about that. Chapter. Well, uh, that's a, uh, it's an interesting question. First of all, I'm a historian of ideas, but I'm also an evolutionist. And I think that being an evolutionist commits you to the belief, not that today is better than the past, but that at some level, understanding the past throws light on the present. So the reason why I wanted to begin my inquiry back in the Middle Ages or towards the end of the Middle Ages was I wanted to see, if you like, what had gone wrong. If you go back to 1500 or so, and I talk about, I say, I'll talk about England, but I think you could, if you were French or if you were German, you could just as well talk about those countries as well. I talk about England and I say, if you go back to 1500, life's pretty awful. I mean, it's hard, there's diseases, you know, there's poverty, and God knows what else. And yet, somehow, life isn't that awful. It's meaningful. And why is it meaningful? Well, because of the Christian religion, that you've got this framework that makes sense of things. But more than this, you have practices of going to church, of praying to the Virgin, but also the holidays, the rituals of, of Easter and these things. But, and also the summer festivals related to saints where the Lord of the Manor would put on a big, a big meal and that sort of thing. So in other words, what I'm saying is, Back at 1500, life was made very meaningful by the Christian religion, and I don't mean to sneer at it at all. But then the question is, so what went wrong or what changed? And I, what I argue, and I'm not being original here, is that there are what I call the three R's, the Reformation, 
the revolution and the Renaissance. The Renaissance is the coming of the, of Greek and the understanding of the of Greek un, uh, Greek philosophy and Greek thought. And of course, there were many Greeks, particularly the atomists, who were who were non-believers, who did not believe in a god and that sort of thing. So on the one hand, you've got these sorts of ideas coming in. Second, the Reformation. Now, of course, at one level, the reformers, the great reformers like Luther and Calvin, were even more sincere Christians uh, than the Catholics. In fact, that was the very point. But at the same time, they started to say, well, there's not just one belief, there's various beliefs. And of course, once you start to say, well, you have a choice, then the choice goes all over the place, and you get the Lutherans, you get the Calvinists, you get the you get the Reformers, you get this, you get that, and you get the other. And so, as I say, I think, again, religion starts to get questioned. And then the scientific revolution from Copernicus, who put the earth at the center, I'm sorry, put the sun at the center, right through to Newton, who gave us an explanation of it from the beginning of the 16th century to the end of the 17th century. Now, that didn't spell atheism. I mean, Copernicus was a minor cleric, and Newton was certainly, if he, he probably a Unitarian, but he was certainly a very deeply sincere believer in God. So he didn't do it automatically. But already it's starting to do things like, you know, bring in science. And of course, it wasn't long before people started to question things like, did Joshua actually, uh, did the sun stand still for Joshua? Is Noah's flood, you know, was it actually universal? Did it actually cover, you know, the north of England? And if so, where's the evidence for it? And that sort of thing. And so what I say is by the 18th century, the time of the Enlightenment, again, it's not that people are out now to atheists, but they're certainly starting to question the veracity of the Christian religion. And this goes right through the 18th century and the great philosophers like Hume and Cantor involved in this. And then comes the 19th century, and particularly then comes Charles Darwin. Now, I think the big reason why people did give up on, if not Christianity, on some kind of religious belief, was what is known as the teleological argument or the argument from design, that the hand seems to work. It doesn't seem to be random. And we all know that randomness, you know, that's Murphy's law. It leads to things going wrong. And yet the hand and the eye seem to be designed. And so everybody felt Whatever the evidence, there had to be a designer. Then along came Darwin, who said, oh, no, I can explain this without the need of God. That doesn't mean at that time that God, Darwin was an atheist. He never was. But it did mean that we didn't have to bring God into the science to explain it, that natural selection could do this. And I think it didn't make people atheists overnight, but I think Richard Dawkins was right when he said it became possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. In other words, atheism was certainly something on on the table then. Although, as I end that chapter by saying, my own feeling is it wasn't so much atheism that that shook people, but by the idea that God is kind of indifferent to us, that with the struggle for existence, with all the nastiness going on, the you know, the, the lion eating the, the antelope and uh, parasites eating the, 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 uh, the caterpillar and, 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 you know, humans fighting, uh, somehow people felt increasingly it was that God didn't care. That a God who let this happen, a God who created this way, was was not a loving, kind God, 
of either the Old Testament or certainly the New Testament. And so, as I say, I think this was the really dramatic thing that people got to as we come into the 20th and, as it were, move through. It's not whether or not God exists, but whether or not it mattered that God exists. I mean, if God exists but, you know, couldn't care less about us, well, you know, in a way, we're almost worse off than a God who doesn't like us very much, a God who's like my late headmaster, whose only aim in life is to make, you know, life miserable for his students or his boys. And um, I think that was the, the thing that people felt. So from the Middle Ages, the security of Christianity, to the, what shall I say, the existential nothingness of the mid-20th century, and of course, the terrible wars and all of these things. I, I, I don't think it was so much that people were out-and-out atheists as just feeling somehow that God wasn't relevant, and that it, it just didn't lead to meaning. So it sounds like what you're saying is that you don't feel that scientific views and religious views are necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, as we know, there's people today that would make the argument from either side, either that they are mutually exclusive or that they can work together. So can you tell us a little bit about arguments from either side and how those views might impact the question of finding meaning in life? Well, obviously, the people who don't like religion, the people like Richard Dawkins uh, and Jerry Coyne at, at Chicago, <clears throat> pick on what they would say, and I would agree with them, obviously false claims in religion, for instance, uh, that there was a universal flood or something like that. And they would say, well, there you are, thin end of a very big wedge. And the further we go down the line, uh, the more and more improbable it is that Christianity is true, uh, that, you know, that the whole notion of miracles, science shows us. I mean, people used to think that there were miracles, but again and again and again, we now see that, that science shows us that there's nothing miraculous about what happens. I mean, in the 19th century, a lot of good Protestants in New York thought that cholera was God's punishment to the Irish, you know, that God intervened because the Irish were so bloody awful and gave them cholera. Well, of course, we now know it wasn't God intervening at all. It was just dirty, dirty drinking water. And as soon as you stopped pooing into your drinking water, made sure it was a lot cleaner, that cholera, you know, went the way of, of, of the dodo. And so, as I say, I think a lot of scientific people feel that God, that religion is false. And as I said, if it isn't false, it's it's just unnecessary. Now, of course, going the other way, I mean, you go all the way from the extreme uh, evangelical creationists who want to argue for six days, uh, 6,000 years ago, uh, won't believe anything other than that, and who you know, reinterpret the fossil record uh, to their ends and that sort of thing. But I do think you've also got an, a lot of, let's say, more liberal Christians People who uh, would well in Canada, United Church types. Let's 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 say that. In other words, very much middle of the road people. People who, on the one hand, would have no trouble whatsoever about a life of science, who might themselves be doctors or dentists using the latest in science and all of those sorts of things, and yet on Sunday, want to go and bellow, you know, bellow out their, you know, their lungs on, you know, onward Christian soldiers and that sort of thing. And they, of course, would want to say that there are aspects of God talk which 
as it were, lie beyond the realm of science. And I'm inclined to agree with them uh, that, for instance, why is there something rather than nothing, what Heidegger called the ultimate question of metaphysics? I don't think science tells us that. Science might tell us that there's a Big Bang, but then, of course, the question is, what came before the Big Bang? Now, of course, religious people want to say, why is there something rather than nothing? Because a good God did it. I mean, non-religious people like myself are more inclined to say, but why bring God into it? Maybe this was how it always was. I think it's a meaningful question. Why is there something rather than nothing? But maybe that there's no answer to it. That, you know, It's just a question. I mean, I like to joke. It's a bit like teenagers. It's a meaningful question. What do we do to make teenagers behave like normal human beings? But there's no answer to the question. I mean, you know, you can't answer it. I, I wonder sometimes whether, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Isn't the same sort of thing. I, I myself, perhaps more controversially, would want to say something like consciousness probably falls into the same category. Of course, we can make huge advances scientifically about consciousness. I mean, you know, when people have got epilepsy and those sorts of things, as we know, either through surgery or through uh, the use of selective drugs, you can make a great deal of difference because we know a great deal about the brain and how it works. And obviously, this reflects into consciousness. I mean, just as, you know, when I've had a few drinks and the world all seems rather shaky, it's not because the world is shaky, it's because my consciousness is shaky at some level. But uh, the Think about consciousness is it's not just atoms, it's not just tables, it's not just chairs, it's not just brains, it's, it's something thinking. I, I'm not sure that science at some level even, even tries to answer that. Science is kind of materialistic. Science can tell you, I mean, science can deal with, you know, Freudian-like, with, with, with thoughts that we've had, but I'm not sure that it can explain, as it were, what the stuff of thinking is. So these would be questions where I would want to say science, it's not that science is inadequate, but that science, you know, has limitations. I mean, it, 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 what shall I say? I don't ever want to say that Sophia Lorraine was inadequate. You know? I don't know what it would mean to say that Sophia Lorraine is inadequate. But I don't expect her to be a whiz at quantum mechanics, for instance. I don't think that this is a failing of Sophia Lorraine that she couldn't do quantum mechanics or can't do quantum mechanics. It's not her thing. And that's what I would say about science. Science is terrific, but I don't think <laughs> science can tell us why is there something rather than nothing. Uh, so, I mean, that dates me, Sophia Lorraine. But, you know, you, 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 plug in, you plug in what you want to as a very young woman, Carrie. You tell me who I should be plugging in instead. But you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, no, that's a very apt metaphor. I totally agree. And I think it makes your point very well. Um, but at this point, you also actually bring into the comparison Buddhism. Um, because uh, instead of just comparing the scientific uh, materialistic a view towards gaining knowledge uh, and in comparison with the Christian God worldview, then you bring in Buddhism, which brings a totally different worldview. So can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, first of all, again, this is history and evolution, isn't it, Carrie? I, I, I was born in 1940s, which means that in my 20s, this was the 60s. So anybody of my age was bound to come up against Buddhism one way or another because everybody was into Buddhism or, or the meaning of Buddhism. And uh, I don't think I ever thought of myself as a Buddhist, but I, I certainly, you know, explored it a bit. 
And I certainly, in many respects, found Buddhism a very attractive, what should we say, theology or world philosophy, because apart from anything else, you don't have a creator God, so you don't have all the troubles about why did God you know, allow small children to die in agony from cancer, or why did God give Heinrich Himmler so much free will that he could kill six million Jews in the gas chambers? If you don't have that kind of God, well, you know, if I can use such a word, shit happens. And uh, I think the Buddhist would say that. But having said that, of course, the Buddhist, Buddhists are at least as moral, if not more so, than Christians. Let's not say more so. I mean, anybody who follows the Sermon on the Mount is a very moral person, and I think a very worthwhile person. But uh, certainly Buddhism is equally concerned with those sorts of issues about kindness, about giving to others, about self-restraint, and a lot of those sorts of issues. And so in that respect, I find Buddhism very attractive. Because the other thing about Buddhism is it doesn't put everything on one life. So you're not stuck with the fact that maybe you know a child dies at 10. And why should you judge a, t- a child who dies at 10 uh, equally with somebody like myself who's you know going to die at 80? And this, you know, am I better or am I not so good? Well, of course, Buddhism doesn't get into that one because every life is just part of the reing, you know, reincarnated lives. So <clears throat> if you die at 10, well, too bad. But the next time round, you could die at 80 maybe. And the person who dies at 80 next time round might die at 45 or something like that. So as I say, I think there's much attractive about Buddhism. I mean, I think the problem is how do you and of course, this goes back to the consciousness problem. How do you preserve the identity from one life to the next? I mean, suppose, for instance, suppose I mean, my family were all into Rudolf Steiner, who were into reincarnation, but they thought that you you turn up in one you know one form as a male and then the next form as a female. Try telling that to a sixteen-year-old when I was hormones pumping wildly, and people solemnly assured me that I had been a woman and I was going to be a woman. And I mean, you know, but what does it mean to say I'm the incarnation of Queen Victoria? I mean, I just don't know what it would mean to say that I am, you know, the life stuff of Queen Victoria. I mean. <laughs> I don't have any memories of Queen Victoria. I don't, as I joke in the book, I, the very thought of spending my holidays in Scotland with a crowd of hairy types in skirts playing bagpipes, you know, instruments that should have been killed at birth, you know, is horrendous to me. So, you know, I, I'm not very Victorianish in that respect. Although, on the other hand, she loved dogs and I love dogs. So, you know, as I say, that's my problem uh, with Buddhism. It's not so much... Not so much that I find it unattractive. I, in many respects, I find it very attractive. It's just when push comes to shove, I'm just not sure how it's going to work. I mean, maybe the fault is in me, but that's why I'm an agnostic, not an atheist or, or whatever. An agnostic, I think, is not somebody who doesn't care. It's somebody who says, I just don't know. I just don't know. And I think that's you know, Buddhism is an excellent example of something that in many respects I find very attractive. But ultimately, I have to say, I just don't know. If you tell me that, you know, in the next, well, that Hitler is now a codfish working out his destiny for the next, you know, 50 million incarnations. Uh, I, I, I just don't know what sense to make of that. Hitler's a codfish. I don't, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs>
<laughs> I agree. Um, but think of it this way. You might well have been a big hairy male, an Anglophone, or a big hairy male, you know, in Russia in your last incarnation. Have you thought of that one, Carrie Lynn? <laughs> you're right. I haven't thought of that one. That's true. Uh, and, and perhaps that's partly why um, Buddhism doesn't have a particular draw for me as well. But um, Although, you know, uh, can I just say one more thing about Buddhism? Uh, it, it surely shows the aridness of so much religion, because uh, I, I, where I live, the evangelical religion, that somebody would think that Franklin Graham is going to go to heaven because he believes in that Jesus Christ was his savior, and that Anne Frank is not because she was a Jew, uh, that the Dalai Lama is not because he's a Buddhist, that, you know, and you can keep going like that. You know, that to me, is kind of obscene. That, oh, so oh, being an, an agnostic like I am is not wishy-washy and saying I, anything goes, I can accept anything, because there's some things I just simply cannot accept. And the idea that Franklin Graham, who last week had a day of prayer for Donald Trump, uh, should go to heaven, and Anne Frank should not go to heaven because she was a Jew. <laughs> Anyhow, I don't want anything to, do, anything to do with that, God, quite frankly. Anyhow, move on. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, but yes, uh, so next you address something that I find uh, a really interesting uh, consideration, and that is if Darwinism can be a religion. So maybe first tell us what you mean by Darwinism as a potential substitute. Yeah, I, I, well, again, it's an interesting question, uh, one that I've explored at some length. I mean, the thing was, when Darwin came along in the 19th century, in the, you know, uh, uh, in 1859 in The Origin of Species, Darwin, as I said, Darwin didn't make everybody an atheist overnight. I mean, it certainly didn't make Darwin an atheist overnight. Uh, there were quite a few Christians who, you know, who accepted Darwinism as there are today. I mean, quite a few Christians who are, I mean, I've, I mentioned Pierre Elliott Trudeau. I'd be very, very surprised if Trudeau rejected evolution. I mean, you know, he was a sophisticated Frenchman. He's not going to turn his nose up at evolution, although, obvious, as we know, at the same time, he was a very sincere and, and deep Catholic. So I, I think the two can go together. But I think a lot of people, and this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of my first chapter, a lot of people felt not so much that God doesn't exist, but that God really doesn't give a bugger about us. If he does exist, he couldn't care less about whether we're happy or whether we're sad or whatever. You know, sorry, folks, just not interested. And I think what a lot of people then did was try to turn to some sort of way of a different kind of meaning. Could they find some other sort of meaning in life that would be a substitute for Christianity? And of course, as we've seen in the 20th century, this was very common. I mean, people who became Marxists, who became deeply committed Marxists, who thought that this could, you know, the answer to life. And I think for a while there, there were a lot of people who thought Freud and Freudianism would give them some sort of secular uh, equivalent of religion. And the, the fact is, a lot of people in the second half of the 19th century, turned to Darwinism or some bastard version of it and thought, well, maybe Darwinism, you know, can give us the alternative answer, a kind of secular religion. Now, 
what would that mean? Well, it means that you're going to have to have some overall picture to life in which you can find meaning, you can find morality, and also, presumably, you're going to find a place to, to put humans. And probably if you've got a religion, you're going to have humans you know, fairly high up on the list, not necessarily the highest. The Buddhists don't put humans as the highest, but certainly very, very, very important. Well, the fact is a lot of people did turn to Darwinism in this way. And I, <clears throat> what I like to say is I think there are two rival paradigms, if you like, rival metaphysics, Weltanschauungen, or something along those lines. For the Christian, it's not the Bible taken literally. Very few people, other than American evangelicals, have ever taken the Bible absolutely literally. I mean, for instance, St. Augustine, uh, around 400 AD, said, you know, the Bible was, wasn't written for literate people. We know that an awful lot of what the Bible says has to be interpreted metaphorically. doesn't mean to say it's not true, but it does mean that we cannot take it as being a literal scientific description. So it wasn't so much the question of the Bible being taken literally, but I think it's fair to say that Christians were committed to what I, what they would call a providential view of life, that at some level God is the creator and that God is in control and that everything we do is a function of God and God's purposes. I mean, you've got to work out you know, all the questions about predestination and free will, but these, these are things to be worked out rather than things which stop you. And so I, I think it's fair to say that the Christian perspective is that without God, we could go nowhere. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count but loss, a poor contempt on all my pride. That's that wonderful hymn written at the beginning of the 18th century by Isaac Watts, the Congregationalist minister. And I think that sums up providence completely, that we can do an awful lot, we can work, and God expects us to, but ultimately, we're in God's hands, and he is going to be the one that saves us or not or whatever. Now, I think the alternative for the evolutionists, and this goes back well before Darwin, was that at some level, the world is progressive. It's getting better. And of course, evolution seemed to be tailor-made for this, from blobs to humans, or as they like to say, from monad to man. And of course, people took Darwinism as being confirmation of this, whether it is or it isn't, it's another matter, but they took this. And of course, the thing is, once you've got this, you've got Things that you should do, namely, you ought to promote evolution, the promotion, the evolution of humans. And this, of course, led to all those bastardized versions of social Darwinism, nature red in tooth and claw. It's okay to fight and, and kill others because the, the fit, the better will succeed. And that's a good thing because that leads to progress. And of course, just as for the Christian, humans are at the center of this providential picture that God's care is focused on those who are made in his own image, namely humans. So as the Christian providential position explains everything in terms of God providence with respect to us, so the Darwinian or the evolutionary progressivist picture has everything, as it were, pointing up to the apotheosis of the evolutionary process, namely homo sapiens. So and what you've got to do is promote 
homo sapiens, and those sorts of things. So instead of the Christian, love your neighbor as yourself, you've got the Darwinian, well, you know, piss on them, fight them, tooth and nail, and the winner, he who wins, wins, and let's move on, as it were. Well, you know, that's a kind of parody. But I do think that once had that kind of picture. Now, as I say, you know, not, it, not every Christian believes the same thing. And uh, let's say, that, I mean, you take the question of the Virgin Mary, for instance. For Catholics, the Virgin is about as central as you get. For Protestants, the Virgin is about as non-central as you can get. That's the, you know, if you ask your good Protestant about the Virgin, uh, you know, they would turn white or, or whatever or start throwing up. So Christians don't agree on everything. And I think it's also going to be true uh, of Darwinians. What is progress? Is progress the big, strong type? Or is progress the clever type? Is progress maybe the kind type? Because as Darwinians will tell you, often you get much further in this life by helping others rather than by fighting them. If I know you, Carrie Lynn, every time you get into a group, are going to try and cheat us and get behind our backs and run away with our husbands or, or you know, maybe you're a lesbian, you know, run away with our wives or something like that. <laughs> you're not going to be a very popular human being. On the other hand, if we know genuinely that Carrie Lynn, oh, yeah, that Carrie, she doesn't look like much, does she? She's, you know, you'd almost think she's a nun to look at her. But, you know, <laughs> she is a wonderful person. When my wife was sick, who knocked on our door with chicken soup? But Carrie Lynn, and it was awful weather. I know she had an exam the next day, but Carrie wouldn't even think of herself at a time like that. And of course, the fact is, we all promote Carrie Lynn, don't we? And we all, I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I mean, you know, when Carrie Lynn needs a helping hand or, or something like that, when one of Carrie Lynn's children is not well, you know, okay, folks. Carrie's our friend, Carrie's part of our team, Carrie's part of our pack. Let's rally around her. And of course, you know, with Carrie didn't help others because she wanted rewards, but she got them. So, of course, Darwinians can just as easily argue for, you know, helping others as for, you know, just being, uh, what should we say, sort of Adolf Hitler writ large all the time. So, as I say, so I think it's more sophisticated than that. So, but I do think that Darwinism as religion is trying to give you a secular alternative to Christianity or any of your conventional religions by playing on modern science. And for that reason, I respect it a great deal. I'm, I, ultimately, I'm not terribly comfortable with it because ultimately, I'm just not sure about progress, progress anywhere. I mean, you look at the United States today, and anybody who thinks you can talk in terms of progress from Obama to Trump, you know, hasn't been watching Fox News or has been watching. Yeah, the trouble is they have been watching Fox News. <laughs> so uh, this is the thing. So I'm not convinced that that much of progress or even humans. I mean, humans are very good. But I don't know about you, Carrie, but if you were dumped on the tundra in the middle of winter in Canada, we're talking about Canada, I very much doubt that Carrie Lynn would be around tomorrow to do radio programs. But on the other hand, if you were, what should you say, an Arctic fox or something like that, then I very much suspect that you would because you'd know how to deal with those sorts of conditions, how to get out of the cold, uh, how to, you know, all of these sorts of things. So being a human is 
very good, but it's not necessarily the only or the best way to survive and reproduce. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we find a, a million years from now there's a lot of parasites around and not many humans. You know, it's going to be something like Planet of the Apes. They're going to come back and find we blew ourselves all to kingdom come. But believe it or not, you know, there were survivors and they're going strong, but they're not human. Well, that actually brings us around to the question of human nature. Uh, in your next chapter, you say that human nature is rooted in our biology and then informed by culture, and that this nature is, in fact, what dictates what will be the meaning of life. So maybe you can explain that. Well, I go you know, once again, I go back to the fact I'm a philosopher. And for me, although I'm not you know, big on continental philosophy, I, I first read Sartre's existentialism as a humanism, uh, you know, in my first year as an undergraduate back when I was 20. And I found it moving then, and I found it moving now. And in many respects, Sartre speaks to me. He says, I'm an atheist, but atheistic existentialism is not worried about whether or not God exists. My existentialism says, you're on your own, folks, whether or not God exists. It's up to you. Now, Sartre wants to say we create human nature from scratch, which I think is total BS. I mean, you know, Sartre had every idea what human nature was like. It was somebody who sat on the west bank of the Seine, uh, smoking nonstop, drinking red wine, and as I like to say, talking in that irritating, Cartesian, brilliant way, and never in bed with somebody to whom you're married. I mean, that's Sartre's <laughs> human nature. But more seriously, I think that Darwinism, and this is just what I was talking about, being Carrie Lynn, you know, Saint Saint Carrie of the, you know, of the Quebecois, uh, that I think human nature is very much a question of sociality. No, what does John Donne say in that wonderful passage? No man is an island, you know, entire unto himself. Uh, ask not for whom the bell tolls; it tolls for thee. And, uh, and that's the fact of the matter is. I mean, yeah, we all know hermits and that sort of thing, but by and large, humans are family people, even if they don't have kids themselves. They have cousins, or they have nieces, or they have mums and dads. And then, of course, next is they have friends. You know, you know the Toronto Raptors going to win tonight. Well, why don't we get together and have a few Molsons uh, and, you know, and, and, and watch it together? Because it's always a hell of a lot more fun to, you know, to watch it with a couple of the mates than sitting at home on the telly biting your nails off you know, as to whether or not they're going to get that next basket. It's always much more fun. And I, I mean, our whole lives. I mean, what the hell am I doing right now? Why am I sitting on my bum in Tallahassee on a Thursday evening talking? I'm not even talking to you. I'm talking to, you know, I'm talking to a computer where I'm getting all these sort of funny signs like which look like Morse code. I'm not even looking at a human being. But why am I doing this? Well, it's okay. It's because I'm a big head. Of course, I like to show off because I want you all to buy my book uh, and all of that. But it's not really that, is it? It's because I'm a I'm a social being. I've got ideas. I'm bubbling over. I want to share them with you. I want to share them with the audience. I mean, whether whether I don't care so much whether you think I'm right. I care that you get pissed off with what I say. That you you, you listen to me and you say that guy is so wrong. I am going to sit down and write something. Or I'm going to you know, do a radio pod myself, which shows that he's wrong. That's 
interacting with fellow humans. And that's what makes life so incredibly exciting. And that, I think, is where meaning comes. It, you remember the old story about the, 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 the father said to his sons, there's hidden treasure out there in the vineyards. And they spent the whole year digging the vineyards uh, to find the hidden treasure. And they couldn't find it. And came the fall, and they had the best crop of grapes they'd ever had. And the father said, I told you there was hidden treasure in the vineyard. And there was. And that, it's, it, it's meaning. It's meaning for doing it as you're doing it, rather than hoping for brownie points in heaven or because you're scared of the big headmaster in the sky who's, you know, whatever you do is not going to approve of what you've done, uh, 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 those sorts of things. And I think meaning has to come very much from our human nature, which I see as essentially social, but also it's, uh, it's living our human nature. It's being part of a group. It's helping others, expecting help in return, loving your children. I mean, that's what human nature, when we hear about parents who've kept their children, you know, locked in a room, you know, from the age of three to the age of 16, there was a case in the, in the States recently, we rear back and say, what kind of monsters are these? these? These people, what do we say? These people just aren't human because humans don't behave that sort of way. And so, as I say, I, I see, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a Pollyanna because obviously humans behave badly. We've all behaved badly. We've all, you know, had that last piece of cake where we knew really somebody else should have had it rather than us. We've all done that sort of thing. And some of us, of course, do that sort of thing much worse than others. So I'm not saying there are, you know, freaks or, or, or those sorts of things. But I think overall, human nature is something sharing. And of course, in my book, what's so important for me is to say, I think that this extends to culture too. That if you look at great culture, it's not something done in isolation. It's something where you're trying to bring in emotions. You're trying to evoke feelings. I mean, Watch, I, I, I just recently got four books of John Constable, the, the English painter. I got them as a, as a, you know, when you do a refereeing job, they say, we'll give you $200 or $400 of our, our books. And Yale University Press is known very much for its art books. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll take, you know, these two four volumes of John Constable. And I look at them and they give me so much pleasure because they can take me back into the 18th century and what it was like to be somebody working in the fields or walking around Salisbury Cathedral. But it, it's all a social thing. It's not, I'm, I'm relating to what these people were like. And thanks to Constable, I'm able to enter into their lives as fellow human beings in some sort of way. And that, as I say, that's what's so vital. And in my book, I talk about the great love in my life, which is opera. <clears throat> and I say, if you look at opera, it's all social. I mean, my, one of my favorite operas is one that a lot of people don't much care for, Cosi Fantuti by Mozart with De Ponte's uh, uh, libretto. And it's, of course, it's about the... <laughs> Two young people, or four young people, are in love with each other. You know, two guys, and two girls, and the old. And they say our love is better than anybody. And the old philosopher Don Alfonso says, <laughs> "And tell that to the, you know, tell that to somebody else." And so they have a bet. The young men that you know, the girls will be faithful. Of course, what happens is that the 
old philosopher sends them off away and they come back dressed as Turks and start courting the other one's girlfriend. And we know what's going to happen by the end of the second act is the girls have fallen for the new guys. And you know, the philosopher says, and that's a cozy fan tutti. So do they all alike. He's not sneering at the girls. He's sneering at the boys too. But it's a social thing. He's saying, you know, boy, aren't we naive when we're young and don't we get to see things better as we get older? And whether you like that opera, whether you'd rather go to, and watch, um, what should we say, Wagner's Ring and all of those sorts of things, uh, it's a social thing. It's, not about, it's about people. It's about, about the meaning of things. I, when I saw you, uh, when we did Skype at the beginning, you got your headsets on, I said, oh, my God, you look like a nun. And immediately I thought of the opera I saw coming on, on the film from the Met a couple of weeks ago, The Dialogues of the Carmelites, great 20th century opera, which, which is all about this girl Blanche who joins the convent and then is scared. And at the end, all the women in the convent, the nuns, are all going to get their heads chopped off on the guillotine because of the French Revolution. And right at the last moment, Blanche appears and joins them. Well, you know, it, it, it's so moving, but it's, it's more than just moving. It's about human beings. It's about how they react, how they regard each other, and how they can transcend their, their ordinary natures. So, as I say, I see great art as social too. So this, for me, is where meaning comes. It's not in, you know, storing up, hoping for eternity or something like that. It, it really isn't. It's not for hoping that God won't be really cheesed off with you when you get there because, you know, today's quota is filled up and he doesn't want any more Quebecois. Only people from Manitoba can go to heaven. Mark you, anybody from Manitoba, let's be fair about it, Carrie Lynn, anybody from Manitoba, I think, deserves an automatic, you know, entry into heaven, having lived in Manitoba. Oh, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have the whole of Canada against me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I love Manitoba. It's a wonderful place. Uh, but uh, you know what I mean. It, 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 that um, living life is, 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 is meaning, and I think that's a meaning to life, is, you know, enjoy it while you've got it. And don't look for uh, something which is not there. That the the joy of life. If there's something else, I don't know. I'm an agnostic. If there is, great. And if there isn't, well, tarpy. I mean, too bad. But you haven't wasted this life by hoping there would be. You've you've enjoyed this life to the full, and I can't think of anything better to do. So, is that your advice to readers then on uh, living a meaningful and happy life—a a sort of carpe diem attitude? Well, yeah, advice. Uh, you know, that's a bit more pompous than I am. <laughs> uh, I'm not here dispensing advice. I mean, I'm not the Pope or anything like that. I'm just simply saying this was the kind of life that I found meaningful. But live the day. But don't do notice that living the day certainly includes getting together with your pals and watching a hockey game and having a few molsons. But it, living the life is not spending your whole life watching telly and having more than a few molsons. Uh, living your life is, 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 is making something of your life as you live it. And as I said, it's social. Giving to others. I always say the only truly happy person is the person giving to others. I mean, that's in Plato, I mean, it, as much as it's in Jesus. And, and I feel that very strong. So it can't be DM, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable about that in the sense of 
It's not lax- lackadaisical. It's not anything like that. It can be tremendously intense, but it's it's tremendously worthwhile. Right. Well, Michael, I've taken up a lot of your time. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you. It's so much fun. I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Well, all I can say, Carrie Lynn, is I hope this is not the last time I appear. And I hope five years from now, I've got another book that we can talk about why why Jesus means a lot to me or something along those lines. Oh, and why <laughs> you and your audience should listen to what I've got to say about, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Uh, I was so mistaken about Noah's flood. It clearly you know, wiped out Montreal a long time ago. <laughs> that actually, but I wanted to ask you what your next project is. I hope you can come back on the show. What are you working on right now? I, I you know, I'm a little bit of a fallow in a way. I'm working on a book on science and religion with a with the Dominica, and I'm, I'm enjoying that. I want to do a bit more. You know, I talked a bit about social Darwinism, and I want to do a bit more work on that. So I've got those sorts of things, but you know. I'm not too worried. I've had a tremendous burst of creative energy over the last few years, writing on literature, writing on purpose. And I, I wrote a book on war around the, the t- time of the second war, the, the end of the First World War. When I lived in Guelph, Ontario, every day I went to and from to work past the cottage, the birthplace of John McRae, you know, in Flanders Fields, the Poppies Grove. So for me, the First World War has always been tremendously important and moving, as of course I think it is particularly in Anglophone Canada. And uh, so I had to write a book on that. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, you know, within the next year, suddenly I realize I don't really want to retire, but that I've got another project to work on, and off we go. So as I say, invite me back in two or three years' time and see what I've got to say, okay? Well, no, that sounds excellent. All of those things that you mentioned would be great to chat about. So so good. Well, yes, thanks again for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this book, and I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person. Okay. Well, everybody... Remember, uh, A Meaning to Life by Michael Roos, published by Oxford University Press. Go out, not only buy it for yourself, buy it for your mum and dad and all your relatives <laughs> and everybody. This is a social business, folks. <laughs> and we'll have a link. We'll have a link to where you can buy the show on the show notes, of course. Well, so. Buy the show. Buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Michael Roos about his new book, A Meaning to Life. You can follow him on Facebook for updates about his speaking engagements and further publications. If you search for Michael Roos, spelt R-U-S-E on Facebook. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about this podcast and the material we cover. I would love to hear about your thoughts on this book. What brings meaning to your life? Has Michael's book given you any new ideas? Find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. And let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you au revoir until my next conversation about new books in secularism.